Well, a very special good morning and welcome everyone. Grab a seat. Um, it's my honor and joy to uh, share the word um, with you this morning. And uh, hands up, quick show of hands if you, if you were here at the Healthy Me, Healthy We conference yesterday. Oh, fantastic. So many. And you're back for more? Oh, great. Well, I hope that you are in for a treat today as um, I think this morning's going to be a little bit unusual, a little bit something different to what maybe you are used to. And, and my hope and prayer is that this takes place, that there would be a mind explosion as we discover really who God is and understand his will for us even more. And uh, so if it's okay with you, I'm going to launch right in and get underway. There's lots to cover. And I'd like to start this service or this message uh, by going back in time and sharing a piece of history that would probably be referred to as the most famous culinary experience of all times. It's uh, called The Last Supper. And in actual fact, it probably wasn't all that fancy. Maybe, you know, Uber Eats just arrived and Matt's like, the burgers are here. And, uh, you know, as they're handing out the burgers, you know, Jesus takes his and maybe even takes a seat and he tries it. And he goes, oh, man, this is amazing. The burgers are better at Heavenly Jack's. And then, <laughs> and then takes some of his and, and, and shares it with his disciples and says, you've you got to try this. And so picking up the story in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26, it says, And while they were eating, Jesus took some of his burger and went, or bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. In verse 27, And then he took his cup and when he'd given thanks for it, he gave it to them saying, Drink, all of you, do this in honor of me, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus would have taken his napkin or his face cloth and he would have wiped his beard and, and cleaned his mouth and then carefully and neatly folded it or rolled it up and placed it back on the table. As it then says in the book of John that Jesus gets down from the table and he washes the disciples' feet before returning to the table and prophesying that one of the disciples would betray him later that night. And which one? The one that was dipping his hand into the same bowl as Jesus as they continued to eat. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Later that night, Jesus is betrayed by the intimacy of a kiss. He is arrested and hurled before two different courts. First, the religious Sanhedrin, and secondly, the political court of the day, where he is tried. He is sentenced, ultimately, to flogging, a beating, and then ultimately to death. Um, and not just any death, but death by crucifixion, to be nailed and hung on a tree. And so now, having been crucified, picking up the story in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 39, it says, And all those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, Ha! You were going to destroy the temple and then rebuild it again in three days. Well, go on then. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're really the Son of God. In verse 41, it said, and in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, they mocked him <laughs> like he saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. Oh, he's the king of Israel. Well, all right then, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Well, let God rescue him now if he wants. For, for didn't he say, I am the son of God? 
And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land. And then verse 46. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that last line in this string of scriptures has often been like a, a bit of a bitter pill for people to swallow because it's, it's hard to understand. And, and for those people who may not be very familiar with Scripture, well, you might be forgiven for thinking it kind of sounds like Jesus is accusing his father of betrayal. Or if you just happen to be reading this verse one day, uh, you might be forgiven for thinking it kind of sounds like God has abandoned his son. But a text that's taken out of context leads to a pretext, which is a false or a misleading understanding. And so forever in a day, theologians have tried to put this difficult verse into an appropriate context to help us understand. And the most common interpretation is, well, you've got to understand that Jesus in this moment, he is taking the sin of the world on his shoulder. And that is much too much of a terrible sight for God the Father to bear. And so he turns his face away. And did you know that the definition of hell is literally to be separated from the Father? So in this moment, Jesus is not asking the philosophical question, why my God has thou forsaken me? No, he's crying out of desperation and desolation, God, don't leave me! At least that is the most common interpretation that is given. But if we were to have a look at this verse from an ancient Hebraic or Jewish cultural context, it might lend us a slightly different understanding and a deeper revelation. Back in antiquity, if a rabbi was to ever preach a sermon like we're doing today, um, they would have been reading from the scrolls that were kept in the synagogue. But if the rabbi was out and about in the field and didn't have access to the scrolls, what they would typically do would cite the, they would cite the first line of a passage of scripture giving reference to what that passage is. Because young boys, especially, would be memorizing and learning scripture from a very young age, getting ready for their bar mitzvah, their rite of passage at the age of 13, where they'd have to recite scripture. And so when the rabbi would, would quote a line, the first line of a passage, uh, chances are the disciples would go, oh, I know this one, and would even be able to finish the entire passage for the rabbi. In other words, back in antiquity, they knew their Bible. My question is, here in the Blue Mountains, how well do you know your Bible? In fact, let me go ahead and put you to the test. See if you can follow and finish the sentences that I say. Are you ready to go? If my people who are called by my would humble themselves and seek my and turn from their wicked ways and gray or something like that, then, then, then God would heal, hear our prayer from heaven and, and heal our land. And so, in other words, I thank God that someone here in Sydney knows their Bible. But in this specific context, if this is true that Jesus is quoting a, a line, a, a passage of Scripture, 
It may well be that he's trying to get our attention by saying, excuse me, excuse me. Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Excuse me, can I get everyone's attention? I would like to refer you to the 22nd Psalm. And if it's true that Jesus wants us to pay attention to Psalm 22, well then, of course, we would do well to actually know what Psalm 22 says. So let's read it together. Psalm 22, starting in verse 1, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer by night, and I find no rest. Yet, you're then throned as the Holy One. You're the one that Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Isn't it amazing? Now, all of a sudden, we've got a different context. As Jesus on the cross, Elohi, Elohi lama sabachthani. Excuse me, can I get everyone's attention? I'd like to refer you to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, You're the God who always gets your people out of trouble. Israel, they placed their trust in you and you always came through and delivered them. And this moment is no exception. A text put into context gives us a slightly different understanding and a deeper revelation. But now everything else that Psalm 22 goes on to say is a prophecy. A prophecy of something that wouldn't happen for another 1,000 years, and yet it is being spoken as though it is happening right here, right now, in the first person. But Jesus is not the one who penned the Psalms. That would be King David. So it's as though David is getting a direct download from the throne room of heaven. Speak, Lord, whatever you say, I write down. In fact, Check it out. Psalm 22 verse 7 says, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. That was the prophecy. A thousand years later, it came to pass and was recorded in Matthew 27. We we read it just moments ago in verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads virtually word for word as it was prophesied to happen. Very next verse, Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Well, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew 27, verse 43 is the prophecy fulfilled a thousand years later. He trusts in God. Well, let God rescue him now for he for once. But didn't he say, I am the son of God? Psalm 22, verse 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Matthew 27, verse 38, two rebels were crucified with him. In other words, surrounded by a pack of villains, one on his right and one on his left. And I think it's fascinating that Jesus prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced. And yet that prophecy came about 500 years before the Roman torture or capital punishment called crucifixion was even invented Very next verse, Psalm 22, verse 17. I can count all of my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Matthew 27, verse 36. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. 
Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide up my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Matthew 27, verse 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and on and on and on it goes. In other words, Jesus on the cross. Hello, he, hello, he, lama sabachthani. Excuse me, can I get everyone's attention? I would like to refer you to the 22nd Psalm for as it was prophesied 1,000 years ago, it has right now just come to pass. A text put into context gives us a deeper understanding and a a deeper revelation. But I don't know if anyone spotted it. There was one verse that we skipped over. We, We read the first five verses of Psalm 22. We skipped over six and then continued on with seven, eight and onwards. But I want to come back to six because every now and again... There's a verse that appears in the Bible that we just kind of straight, like scratch our head at and we go, what, like, what on earth does that even mean? And, and so what we tend to do when we see a really difficult verse is we just step on over it and continue on like nothing happened. But every now and again, it's good for us to come back and chew on and wrestle with these difficult scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit to give us revelation. Because the Bible says that in the end times, He's going to pour out fresh revelation on his people. In other words, there are still hidden gems in the scriptures that are yet to be revealed and discovered. And I believe this may well just be one of them. So let's read it together. Matthew, or sorry, Psalm 22, verse 6 says, Jesus prophetically saying through King David, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Now, of course, we know that Jesus was scorned by everyone and despised by the people. We've just been reading about it in Matthew chapter 27. But what on earth do you think it means when Jesus says, but I am a worm and not a man? Well, I was in the Netherlands um, not so long ago, and a pastor friend of mine said, when he was growing up, his priest said said to him that if Jesus said that I am a worm and you are worth less than Jesus, then you must be a maggot, and maggots are filthy and disgusting. I'm like, what? Stop. Like a text taken out of context leads to a pretext, a false or a misleading understanding. So, So let's chew on this for a bit and see if we can figure out what this might mean. So there are obviously two parts to it as we take a closer look. Um, The first is, I am a worm. And the second part is, I am not a man. The book of Isaiah might help us put the second half into context, as it says in chapter 52, verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form beyond any human likeness. In other words, because of the beatings that Jesus received, his face was unrecognizable as a man. In paying the penalty for our sins, in paying the price that we would do to pay, Jesus, in effect, took our beating that we deserved. But but, but in so doing, he engaged or instituted what we refer to these days as the beautiful exchange, where we get to save face. But in the process, Jesus' face is marred beyond any human likeness. But if we're not careful, we can take this beautiful exchange and turn it into the ugly transfer, where sometimes when we do the wrong things, we beat ourselves up 
and we end up looking in the mirror, asking the same kind of question, like, who even are you? As we are in disbelief at some of the choices, the poor decisions that we have made. If anybody knew a thing or two about this, I reckon the Apostle Paul would be a pretty good candidate as he went ahead in Romans chapter 7 and delivered one of the greatest pieces of Shakespearean poetic literature in Scripture as he says, the things that I want to do, I do not do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Like who can help? Like such an idiot like me. He goes on to say, it's like it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living inside me that does it. The passage ends by saying, who can save me from this body of death? Now, we might naturally conclude, well, who can save me from this body of death? The wages of sin is death. So if you keep on doing the thing that you know you shouldn't do, well, that's where you're going to end up. But it might surprise you to know that theologians argue that what the Apostle Paul is referring to here is another form of Roman capital punishment. We've all heard of the crucifixion, But there was another form of capital punishment. You could be sentenced to death by being strapped to a dead body. Now, can you imagine what would happen if you are face-to-face, limb-to-limb, strapped to to a dead body? Three things immediately going to take place. Firstly, that is so disgusting, it might drive you crazy. Uh, Secondly, immediately, your friends would be like, ew, that's disgusting, like, get away, oh, gross, man. And that, all too often, is what happens when our sin is exposed. What? You can, ew, that's, man, pervert, you wick, weirdo, like whatever it might be. They start pointing and, and start separating. But thirdly is that the dead decaying flesh will transfer itself to the living and this will kill you. A little bit like one rotten apple ruins the entire barrel of apples. The dead decaying flesh transfers itself to the living. What theologians argue is that the Apostle Paul, by saying, who can save me from this body of death, he's referring to a phenomena called shame. That when you beat yourself up for what you've done, you experience shame. Now, it's important to distinguish shame from guilt. Guilt is where you feel bad for what you've done. But shame is where you feel bad for who it is that you've become. You see, there's a difference between sin and iniquity. Sin is where you've made a mistake and you feel bad because I shouldn't have done that thing. But iniquity is where you keep on making that same mistake over and over and over and over again. So much so that I'm not feeling bad for what I've done. I'm I'm now feeling bad for who it is that I have become. Shame is a little bit like the devil's whisper. The enemy comes along even in a morning like now where we've been singing these amazing worship songs and we're surrendering everything and we're saying, you are worthy of it all. And then the enemy comes along and says, <laughs> no, 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 you are weak. You are perverted. You are incompetent. You are impossible to love. You are stained. You are soiled. You are tampered with. You are defective. This is who you are. Just give it a few more days and you'll be right back doing what you did last night. Neurologically speaking, if we don't deal with our shame, it leads to brain changes in the basal ganglia of our brain. Now, I'm not sure the last time the words basal ganglia were mentioned from this platform, but let me just unpack it really quickly. Basal simply means base, and ganglia is just a cluster of cells. So a cluster of cells at the base of the brain. And the reason why this is so important is because this is where identity and habits get locked in. 
If we don't contend with our shame, it starts to eat away at the core of who we are, our identity, and also what we habitually go on to do. When we are racked with shame, we experience identity confusion. We lose touch with who we are. And now with our self-worth in freefall, we'll look for other ways in order to self-soothe and feel good again. And so the exhilaration of sexual engagement or the high of drug use or the euphoria that comes even from ongoing conflict, arguing and dramas in our relationship, they all become a vice for us after a while. Even alcohol is simply referred to in psychology as liquid love. It's a tonic that we apply to ourselves to help drown out the shame. It kind of reminds me a little bit of that song by Sia. How does it go? Like uh, something like, keep my glass full until morning light. Because I'm just holding on for tonight, on for tonight. Sun is up, I'm a mess, got to get out now, got to run from this. Here comes the shame, here comes the shame. One, two, three, one, two, three, drink. The song sings, ends by saying, throw them back until I lose count. Toxic shame is almost always synonymous with addiction. So what do we do with our toxic shame In our contemporary day and age, even as parents, if a child is continually doing the wrong thing, we like to make them feel bad for what they have done, thinking that it will somehow prick their conscience into wanting to do the right thing. We must be some special kind of stupid. (laughs) The same is true even in church or even in society. Like we, we, We like to make people feel bad. Even cigarette packets these days are black and white. And they've got grotesque images of tumors and cancers and gum disease and all sorts of... And it says, every cigarette is doing you damage or harm, causing you harm. Now, we know in psychology that if you don't smoke cigarettes, that right there is an effective deterrent. But if you do smoke cigarettes, which is usually the people who buy those cigarette packets, well, you look at that and that makes you feel, well, bad, shamed because you're causing yourself harm with every cigarette. And look, this is the consequences of what you do. And if you feel bad, well, that's a threat to your survival. So the brain makes, says, you need to do something good, quickly, pleasurable, something pleasurable, quickly. What do you do? Light up a cigarette. It'll make you feel good. So we've known forever and a day that that kind of marketing actually reinforces a cigarette smoking habit. Like, what do we... What are we doing? Even in church, when somebody makes a mistake, we go, oh, that's terrible. And we start pointing the finger. You've, no, what, no, stop. If you beat yourself up for what you have done, you are almost certainly insured to do it again. There's got to be a better way. If there was ever a person in Scripture who was likely wrestling with shame, I reckon Rahab from the Old Testament, she would have been a pretty good candidate. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Rahab, she's a prostitute who's living in the town of Jericho, and she would have been an outcast. In fact, Scripture records that she was living on the outskirts of the town, on the city wall. In in other words, you can't get further away uh, from the city center than that. 
And people would have been gossiping about her. Like, you know, when somebody came into the room, oh my gosh, did you just see whose husband walked into the room? And we know this to be true because one day two Israeli spies came in to visit Jericho to spy out the land. And, and, and of course, the neighbors quickly told the city officials, oh, there are two Israeli spies, um, you know, taking up lodging in, in Rahab's brothel, uh, which we'll get back to in a moment. Now, Scripture doesn't actually record what these two Israeli spies' names were, but I have it on good authority that their names may well be Luther Stickle and Ethan Hunt, from Mission Impossible. Maybe, just maybe, not sure. Now, now, maybe, maybe, because obviously they weren't very good at their job. Uh, They must have only just graduated from the very first Mossad spy school in Israel because, well, they got identified on their very first mission. Where are the spies? Oh, they're in with Rahab. So the city officials come knocking. Rahab. Where are these two Israeli spies you've got hidden? And she's like, Israeli spies? Oh, what? You, oh, you mean those funny-looking, smelling kind of... Hang on just a second. I'll see if they're still here. And she goes in. She goes, guys, quickly, hide up on the roof, underneath the flax. The city officials are here for you. And then she comes back out. And she says, actually, you just missed them. They just left out by the city gates. But if you hurry, you can catch them. And she lies, putting her life on the line in order to protect theirs. Hardcore. Why on earth would she do that? Well, I reckon Rahab totally knew the time of day. She would have had sojourners and customers coming into the brothel who would have been talking about, I'm like, have you heard about these Israelites? I mean, man, like their God just parted the Red Sea. An entire nation walked through on dry ground. Uh, Their God goes before them as a pillar of fire at night and a smokestack during the day. And and you know what? They don't even have to, you know, garden or graze. Their God just rains down manna or bread from heaven. And it's interesting because wherever they go, they annihilate and take over. And by the way, have you heard? They're just outside of Jericho. So from Rahab's perspective, she totally knows the time of day as she saves their lives and in the process puts her own life on the line. Now, to put this story into a bit of context, four decades earlier, Moses sends in 12 spies to go spy out the land. And you know this story. Ten of them come back with a bad news report. Oh, there's giants in the land. It's too much. We can't do it. And two, Joshua and Caleb, are the only ones who come back with a good news report. Our God is more than able. Come on, let's go. Four decades later, Joshua himself is now at the helm. He is leading Israel. And he's thinking to himself, I'm not making that same mistake again twice. Like I'm not sending 12 spies in. I'm just going to send in two because two came back previously with a good news report. It's Interesting when we have a look at this, because it seems as though that there might be some parallels going on with this story. Because uh, Joshua, uh, this name Joshua, in the Greek is pronounced Jesus, or in ancient Hebrew, Yeshua. It's no surprise that Joshua and Jesus actually share the same name because in this particular juncture of the story, they're actually also sharing the same role, delivering God's people out of bondage into freedom. 
And as Jesus, he too, he was there with 12 apostles, all same true with, uh, with jo- Joshua, because he was one of the original 12 spies that came in to spy out the land. So in other words, this was Joshua's second coming. There's some cool parallels here. Like, and, and even when Rahab lets the spies down on the city wall uh, with a rope, she says to them, now don't go back immediately to your camp because the city officials are out there looking for you. First go three days into in t- the mountains. You all didn't get it. Three days! Whenever the Old Testament refers to three days, like Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days, all too often it is a reference to Jesus being in the tomb for three days. And if it's true that there are some parallels in this story, and this story is pointing to Jesus, well, we should expect to see other signs and symptoms. And the good news is, we do. Before the spies leave, they say to Rahab, take a scarlet rope. And tie it in your window, such that on invasion day, the army will know whoever is inside the brothel shall be saved, and the army will pass over. This, of course, is a reference to an earlier time in Egypt where God said, paint the scarlet blood across the doorposts, and so anyone who is inside, when the death angel comes, the death angel will pass over that house and whoever is inside will be saved. But, but my question is, wh- why a scarlet rope? Like, why not just a, a normal rope? Because the color or the dye scarlet was incredibly expensive. It was only reserved and preserved for the holy priesthood or for royalty. So Rahab would have had to have spent some significant coin in order to go and dye this this rope, the scarlet color. But it's interesting because scarlet is the same color as blood. And on the cross of Calvary, Jesus gave up his life blood. And at that moment when he died, the temple curtain, this seven centimeter thick veil was torn in two. It too had the scarlet color on it. So it could be said that through the the death of Jesus, well, Rahab, was given a lifeline. And not just a lifeline, but also a bloodline. Because it is said that Rahab afterwards went on to marry Salmon from the tribe of Judah, who, by the way, is rumored to possibly be one of the two Israeli spies that took up uh, lodging with uh, Rahab, begging the question, like, what really happened in that brothel? But that's a whole other question for another time. And they had a son, and his name was Boaz, and Boaz married Ruth. Now, before Boaz married Ruth, he was ruthless. Okay, so moving right along. And, and, and then they had a, a child who had another child, and a great-grandson was, of course, King David. And from the lineage of King David came Jesus. You've got to get this. When Jesus wipes away our shame, he doesn't just do a patch-up job. No, he says, now, I'm going to be born into humanity Which family shall I be born into? You know what? I want to be born into the family of Rahab, the prostitute. Jesus is not ashamed of our shame. He is happy to meet us right where we are at and take us on a journey if we let him, if we trust him. Which is why, as we read from Psalm 22, remember in verse 4 and 5, it says, In you, our ancestors, 
placed their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. Our ancestors trusted you and they were not put to shame. In other words, the antidote to shame is called trust. When we are able to fully and wholly and completely place our trust in him, when we stand on Sunday and we sing those songs, I surrender all, not I surrender almost. <laughs> no, we give him every part of us and say, I, tr- I trust you. I trust you. He, he's, he's not the God of second chances. He's the God of brand new beginnings. He wipes it all away and says, here's a fresh new start. So, it kind of makes sense now, okay, so that speaks of shame, you know, Jesus, okay, I, I am not a man, and you know, the, the, the beating, like this oftentimes a refer, reference to ourselves, that we, we beat ourselves up, we become unrecognizable to ourselves, and we need to contend with our shame, um, okay, so, okay, unrecognizable as a man, but still, what on earth does it mean when Jesus says, but I am a worm? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, as the worship team come and join me, um, the ancient word in Hebrew for worm is rimmer. But it's interestingly, in this, interesting, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus does not say, I am a rimmer. But rather, he uses a different Hebrew word to describe worm. Instead of saying, I am a rimmer, Jesus says, I am a tola'at. And the word tola'at doesn't just describe any old worm, but it describes a special type of worm, which is called the scarlet worm. It's the worm that was used to make the scarlet dye in antiquity. Now, there are 600 different types of this species of worm. And so not so long ago, researchers in Israel conducted some genetic analysis found on fabric that would have been kept from around about the time of the second temple, so about the time that Jesus walked the earth. And then they cross-compared it with the various different types of species, and they found an exact match. They reported their findings in the 2005 Bioscience Journal. The exact worm that was made to use, uh, that was used to make the scarlet dye in the day and age of Jesus is called the Kerme Econatus. It's about a half a centimeter sized grub. And this grub is harvested, taken from the tree and put into boiling water. And it discolors the water and turns it into a dark crimson scarlet color. This is, this is what Rahab would have had to have dipped her rope into in order to dye it the scarlet color. But when we have a look at the life cycle of this worm, this is the moment where is about to take place. When the worm goes to give birth to its young, It's taken by soldier ants, two different species, up to the cross section of a tree, and it is pinned there so firmly that it will never come back down alive. This is the place where the juiciest sap is located, which is essential for babies' development. Um, But the worm can't process the sugar, and so it excretes the sugar from the body, and the ants take advantage of the worms that are pinned and eat the sugar. The worm eventually gives birth to its babies and it positions them underneath her body so as to protect them from the predators of which there are a great many. And then her body starts to swell 
it swells up with a, a crimson gel or a scarlet liquid that until it eventually grows so big that it bursts and it stains anything that it touches. It stains the tree upon which um, it is uh, pinned, a stain never to be washed away by wind or rain. And this is, is the time where the babies then eat the body of the, the broken uh, mother's body and, and before going on into their own life cycle. But it's also the time when you can harvest the worm. And the reason why this dye is so expensive is because there's only three days that you can harvest this worm. Because after the body has burst, three days later, the body turns into a snow white ball of wool. This is a wax-like substance that falls to the ground. It is also collected and used as a wood preservative, which is greatly symbolic because we too want to preserve the message of the wooden cross. And what's the message? Well, Isaiah chapter, what is it? 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Just when you thought the message was over. But, but, but wait, there's more. Three days later, um, obviously Jesus has been put into the tomb. And, you know, three days later, Mary Magdalene comes along on Sunday morning. And she sees that the stone has been rolled away. And she thinks to herself, they've taken Jesus. So she quickly runs to to Peter and John and says, come quickly, that they've taken the Lord. And so Peter and John run out to the tomb. Now John is writing and says, and John was the fastest runner and made it there first. And he stood outside and he looked in and he said, sure enough, there's, there's, there's no Jesus, just like the grave clothes. And then Peter comes along. Peter doesn't have the same airs or graces that John does. And he just bolts right on in the cave. And he's like, yep, no Jesus. All that remains are these kind of grave clothes, like Jesus just got out of bed, like the sheets are still on the, on the ground. And then in John chapter 20, verse 7, it says, And the napkin, or the face cloth, or the serviette that was laid upon Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen clothes, but rather neatly rolled up or folded in a place, all by itself, separate from the linen. Now I've got a question. Why would the Bible spend such an expensive piece of biblical real estate, an entire verse to let us know, oh, by the way, Jesus is a neat Jesus. <laughs> Which is where we kind of grasp the modern day concept, you know, cleanliness is close to godliness. <laughs> but a text taken out of context leads to a pretext, a false or a misleading understanding. And so in order to understand this interesting verse, we need to go back to the place that we started this message. Jesus sitting down with his disciples, breaking the bread and says, hey, eat. This is my body that has been broken for you. By the way, now we've got a different context for this because the baby worms eat the broken body of their mother in order to survive and go into their own life cycle. And then Jesus takes his cup filled with a scarlet wine and says, this is my this is my blood that has been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink, all of you, do this in remembrance and in honor of me. And then Jesus would have taken his napkin or his face cloth and wiped his mouth and cleaned his beard and then neatly and carefully folded it up and placed it on the table. Now, when Peter and John saw this, because of the Hebraic 
or Jewish cultural context, they would have immediately known what that means. But if Jesus would have just taken the cloth and finished and just tossed it on the, on the table, it would symbolize, well, I'm finished. You can start the cleanup process. But when Jesus carefully takes the time to neatly fold or roll up the napkin and place it back on the table, it tells us one thing and one thing only. Jesus is saying, I am not finished yet. I will be back. Father God, I just thank you so much that at the dawn of creation, when you were making all the animals, you thought to yourself, you're going to make an animal that will one day represent me. And it wasn't a dove, and it wasn't a lamb, and it wasn't a lion. It was a lowly worm. A worm whose life cycle, just like you, voluntarily allows itself to be pinned by soldiers to the cross section of a tree so that its people can live. Thank you so much, God, that you freely, willingly have given up your scarlet blood so that we too can be washed clean and be made white as snow. Thank you, God, that we can place our trust in you. And we will not be put to shame in Jesus' name. You know, I'm just going to actually thought to just take a moment extra, if that's okay with you, and, and ask whether or not you're aware this message today was actually a love story. It's the greatest love story that's ever been told. And I, and I wonder if you've got a love story. Maybe somebody once upon a time got down on bended knee and proposed. Maybe that was you or maybe you were the recipient of it. But tradition is actually relatively new. It's only been around a few, few hundred years. It started in Europe. Um, prior to that, we didn't have wedding rings or engagement rings. It, it, back in Jesus' day, if, if a young man wanted to propose to, to, to a, a young girl, he would first have to go to her parents and negotiate a price. And you might think, oh, on, that, that's just barbaric because a woman is not a commodity to be bought or sold. And, and I would agree, and so would Scripture. You see, he's not, he's not negotiating a price to buy her. He's negotiating a price to be able to ask her because in Jewish culture, the woman has the final say. No woman can be forced into a marriage against her will. She gets to decide whether or not they're going to be married. So once the price has been negotiated and sorted, he will take her out on a date. And when the sun is shining just right and the cool music is playing in the background, as they're kind of having a drink together, he'll nervously... And when he works up the courage, he will extend his cup and say, drink, do this to honor me. And if she takes his cup and drinks and shares his boy germs, from that moment on, they are betrothed to be married. But because there's no ring to show all of the other young bucks that this girl has taken, the community changes her name. She's no longer referred to by her own name, but she's referred to as one who was purchased with a price. And then he says to her, so I'm going to go now and I'm going to go back to my father's house and prepare a place for us to live after we're married. And he'll never know when he'll be able to come back and collect her or marry her because it's the father's responsibility to release the son. And so in the meantime, 
He'll send a, a brother, a cousin, a, a friend, a relative to, to, to pass love messages back and forth between them to check up and say, how are you doing? You got anything? We're good. Go back. And, but when eventually that time is right, and she'll never know when that time is. She needs to be ready and waiting every day. No, no good waking up, hair everywhere, three-day growth, nails not done. Because <laughs> today could be the day. And when eventually that day occurs... And the father releases the son. He gathers all of his buddies from the neighborhood. And with the sound of a ram's on, they announce that they're coming and they call her name. And that's the only warning that she gets. Oftentimes they come in the middle of the night and they sneak in the window and they collect her and they carry her away. And in the morning, the parents wake up and she's gone. Nowadays, they call triple zero. She's been abducted. But, but, but in that day, they go, She's been raptured. If you know your Bible, you should be freaking out right about now. Because that right there is the greatest love story that has ever been told. As Jesus is reclining back with his disciples and says, Here, drink. Do this to honor me. You see, I've negotiated a price for you. And it's the most expensive price that a groom has ever paid. I mean, the disciples must have been freaking out because they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? This is the marriage proposal. Like, I'm not like that. Jesus, what's happening here? But, but Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. See, I want to be in an everlasting relationship with you. And I've paid the price, the most expensive price that a groom has ever paid. He paid with his life, with his own lifeblood, with the scarlet. And then Jesus says to us, so I'm, I'm going to go away now. I'm going to prepare a place for you and for you and, and for you. You see, in my father's house, there are many rooms and I'm going to prepare a place just for you. But because I will never know the time or the day that I will come back to get you because only the father knows, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to commune back and forth between us. And so every day we need to be ready and waiting because we'll Today could be the day. And eventually, when God the Father releases Jesus the Son and says, hey, go back and fetch your bride, it says in the book of Revelation that he will mount up with the hosts of angels and with the sound of a trumpet blast, he will come to fetch his bride. And the bride is called the church of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And the Spirit and the bride say come it's the greatest love story that's ever been told and I don't know if you are ready to enter into that relationship with him but if you are just know that even today he's extending the cup and he's saying all you have to do is drink it doesn't matter what's gone on in the past that gets wiped away when you enter into this relationship with me the sins are forgiven. The iniquity is gone. It's covered by the blood, by the scarlet blood. And we enter into a relationship with Him. And, you know, in a room of this size, I can imagine that not everyone is, is in a relationship with Him. Or maybe you were, but you're not now. And you know that your life is not right with God. But if you'd like to be, I'd just love to end just by praying a simple little prayer with you and for you. And if you want to pray this prayer with me, in fact, why don't we all pray this prayer just together, just repeat these simple words. Just say, Dear God, thank you for giving up your lifeblood 
and dying on the cross to forgive my sins, for the chance to enter into relationship with me. But thank you, Jesus. You didn't stay dead. Three days later, you rose again. And right now, you are actively alive. And I invite you into my heart. Live in me. Help me follow you all the days of my life. So I say yes to your invitation. And I drink of the cup. Not only now, but forevermore. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.